So I'm just going to start with a poem by Ryokan. My hut lies in the middle of a dense forest. Every year the ivy grows longer. No news of the affairs of men. Only the occasional song of a woodcutter. The sun shines and I mend my robe. When the moon comes out, I read Buddhist poems. I have nothing to report, my friends. If you want to find meaning, stop chasing after so many things. So why am I, why am I giving a talk on entering the forest? Uh, well, there's a couple of reasons, and I'd like to go through those reasons because they sort of tie into the, into the talk, uh, into the body of the talk. First of all, I've sort of, I have a, an intuitive respect um, and like or love of trees, especially big and ancient trees. I enjoy being in woods and forests. Uh, last year, I had the um, good fortune to uh, go to California, and I went to a, a grove of giant redwoods, sequoias. Um, this species of enormous tree has been on the planet for about 240 million years and it can grow to the height of about 370 feet, and also to a diameter of 24 feet, up to 24 feet. Some of the largest trees that are still alive now were alive a couple of thousand years ago. Uh, and it's amazing to think that sort of this tree's alive, these, these, some of these sequoias, these giant redwoods, that were alive during the time of Jesus, probably aren't any that were alive during the time just 100 years before of the Buddha, unfortunately. In the last 200 years, mankind has felled 95% of the giant redwoods on the western seaboard of the USA, which is where they grow. Most of the tree felling has happened in it during a single 80-year period. Um, of course, deforestation isn't unique to the United States. Britain is the second most deforested country in Western Europe. Several hundred years ago, you know, Britain was covered, the landmass of Britain was covered in trees. Um, now only 12% of land coverage is, is forest. And that compares pretty poorly with the rest of Europe, where the average is, is about 25%. It seems that man, especially modern man, is driven to control and create order where there is wilderness. We tend to have a utilitarian outlook. In Oscar Wilde's words, we seem to know the price of everything and the value of nothing. By destroying the forest, we are, de we are decimating the natural environment, the biodiversity of the planet, and of course, we are ultimately killing ourselves. And I don't just mean physically. We're killing ourselves psychologically and spiritually too. And I think this is well conveyed, albeit in quite a cheesy and Hollywood way, in the film Avatar, which I imagine many of us here have seen. A few years ago, as many, you, as, you, as many of you know, I spent about 16 months in the, uh, the, the men's residential community at Gujiloka, which is the men's ordination retreat centre in southern Spain. One of the key attractions of going there was the opportunity to live and work in a fairly remote mountain forest context. It's mostly pine and holly oak trees, so it's not a particularly interesting forest, but it is a forest nevertheless. It was and is a wonderful place, and I loved it, 
But why did I love it? William Blake described man as consisting of four functions, or what he called, described as zoas. These are the body, reason, emotion, and imagination. He believed that we are fallen or divided when our humanity, which he associated with the imagination, is asleep. And we develop our potential. We become integrated individuals when we identify with and live from our imagination. For me, the forest is a place where the imagination can thrive. In the context of the forest, I feel more earthed, whole and connected to my depths. Possibly because there's no mobile phone coverage, no TV, no internet. With the absence of such distractions and being surrounded by nature, the imagination, no longer swamped by synthetic external stimulation, is free to surface and express itself. This is why I'm drawn to the forest, and I think it's why many of us are drawn to the forest. For quite some time before I was um, ordained in 2004, I was intrigued and fascinated by a particular, particular picture, a painting, by the German romantic artist Caspar David Friedrich. So here we are. I don't know if you can all see that. I'll, I'll pass it round. Um, I'll have a look. So I'm going to describe it, Helen, so you don't need to be able to see it. There we go. I'll just pass it to Steve. So the picture's called Chasseur in the Woods. A chasseur is a, is a particular type of French soldier. Sometimes, sometimes chasseur can mean hunter too, but in this case it means a particular sort of French soldier. Four-fifths of the painting, so the four-fifths of the top half of the four-fifths of the painting, um, depicts the edge of a dark forest in winter. In the middle centre foreground, dwarfed by the trees and looking into the dark forest, is a soldier with his back turned to us. Even closer to us, in the near centre foreground, are two sawn tree stumps, and on top of one of them is perched a raven. For me, the two sawn tree stumps represent the edge of so-called civilization, the edge of mankind's controlled and known environment, which is open, clearly seen, and conscious. The forest represents the wilderness, which is unknown, uncontrolled, dark, and unconscious. The soldier represents a particular type of person, for whom exercising the power mode and being in control is paramount. Interestingly, in this painting, he inhabits the boundary between the two, these two worlds. It seems as if he's deliberating whether or not to enter the forest. In mythology, particularly Celtic mythology, the raven often represents death, especially death after a battle. But it needn't be a battle that results in physical death. It could be a battle that results in social, psychological, or even spiritual death. Perhaps you can see why I was drawn and why I'm still drawn to this picture. And I'll return to it at the end, towards the end of the talk. 
The final reason that I'm giving this talk, which I'm entitling Entering the Forest, is because of a throwaway comment that was made at the beginning of a retreat I went on uh, last year. On the first day of the retreat, the leader invites us all to say a little about ourselves and to report in and say why we were there. One of the retreatants reported that she'd been having a difficult time, but recently things had got better. She ended, she ended her reporting in with the phrase, but I'm not out of the woods yet. And it was this phrase, more than anything on that retreat, that stayed with me and that I worked with for the whole week that I was there. Something about it gnawed away at my psyche, and I just couldn't put it down. Again, I'll say a little more about this later. So those are the reasons why I'm giving this talk. So what's the meaning of the forest? What does a forest mean? In an, an illustrated encyclopedia of traditional symbols, the author, J.C. Cooper, writes, Entering the dark forest, or the enchanted forest, is a threshold symbol. The soul entering the perils of the unknown, the realms of death, the secrets of nature, the spiritual world which man must penetrate to find meaning. Verse 99 of the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, Inspiring are the forests where worldlings find no pleasure. There the passionless will rejoice, for they seek no sensual pleasures. The whole of the Dharma, and perhaps the whole of this talk, is in this verse. For the Buddha, the forest is definitely not a place of sensual pleasures. And if we don't enter it wanting or expecting sensual pleasures, if we leave the world of attachments behind, then we will find inspiration and experience joy. Inspiration comes from the Latin word inspirare. It means to create a positive feeling in a person, to animate and to inhale. So bearing this in mind, we could say that the forest is a place where we are invigorated, become animated, come to life. And how does this happen? Well, it happens through renunciation, letting go and embracing simplicity, through facing our fears, through transformation, and finally, through opening ourselves to reality. And in the rest of the talk, I'll be addressing each of these in turn. So first of all, the, play, the forest is a place of renunciation, letting go and embracing simplicity. In contemporary society, I think renunciation gets quite a bad press. It somehow smacks of repression. I wonder if the reason for this is that contemporary society and the economic system that supports it promotes the exact opposite. Instead of renunciation and embracing simplicity, it encourages excess, profligacy, uninhibited indulgence and greed. Consequently, so much of my life has been, and to some extent still is, full of unnecessary, superficial, frivolous and meaningless material possessions. When I lived at Gukiloka, I had a rucksack of material possessions for the whole time that I was there. When I lived at a men's community in South Manchester, I had a bedroom full of material possessions. 
When I bought a four-bedroomed house, I very quickly filled that full of material possessions. Was I any happier with a house full of material possessions than a room full of material possessions, or even a rucksack full of possessions? If I really think about it, then the honest answer has to be no. But for some strange reason, that doesn't stop me collecting them. If or when we live in the forest, it's much more difficult to accumulate and retain stuff because so much of what we're attached to in the city has absolutely no use or value in the forest. In the forest, it's much easier to see how unnecessary and to some extent ridiculous so many of our everyday attachments are. In the forest, we have the opportunity of exchanging a quantity of things a quantity of stuff for increased or greater quality of experience. We begin to appreciate the apparent paradox that less really can be more. Sangharachita, in Vision and Transformation, says, <clears throat> Sometimes people think of giving things up in terms of sacrifice. Parting with things is a painful wrench, but it should not be like that. In Buddhism, there really is no such thing as giving up in this way. From the Buddhist point of view, what is required is not so much giving up as growing up. It's not sacrifice to the adolescent. It's not a sacrifice to the adolescent to give up the toys of childhood. And in the same way, it should not be a sacrifice for the spiritually mature person or the person who is at least least verging on spiritual maturity to give up the toys with which people usually amuse themselves. The point to be made is that if we really have some degree of vision of the true nature of existence and have really to some extent seen the inadequacy of material things, then our hold on them will be relaxed and we will be quite willing and happy to at least let some of them go. Earlier this year, I was on a retreat in North Wales and I was reflecting on what I need to do in order to live my spiritual life more deeply. Some of you know that I paint not very well uh, and I usually paint from my imagination. So as part of this process, this process of reflection, I I thought about the recurring threads and themes in my paintings over the last several years, as well as the recurring threads and themes of my reflections Uh, that I write in my journal or have written in my journals. What I discovered was that there are four key themes that keep coming up again and again, all of which, in one way or another, relate to renunciation. And I summarised them in four slogans to help me remember them. And they are, slow down, let go, be naked, and live lightly. Of course, these are all personal to me. They've come out of, my, out of my process and they point towards what I need to do in order to go deeper. However, in some respects, they're not personal to me at all. They apply to everyone. They're universal. I'll go through them in turn. So first of all, slow down. The evidence of my life would tend to suggest that I've unconsciously operated by the principle that because my life and time is finite, I need to pack in as much as possible. 
This has resulted in me often rushing about. Sadly, and rather embarrassingly, I still do this. Slowing down is about not being so task-focused. It's about placing more emphasis on the process of how things are done, rather than overly focusing on achievement. Being rather than doing, just slowing down, waking up and smelling the coffee. It's probably fairly obvious that mindfulness and awareness do not flourish in the fast lane of life. But, despite knowing this intellectually, it's still a difficult lesson to put into practice. So the second slogan is let go. Letting go is about not seeking to control, not striving after certainty, being more open to spontaneity and a bit of chaos. If everything in phenomenal existence is impermanent and insubstantial, then trying to hold on to control is both pointless and inevitably leads to suffering. Ultimately, letting go is the only option if we want to experience peace and contentment. Again, in my own experience, there's often a gulf between knowing this and doing something about it. So my third slogan is, be naked. Being naked is about being transparent and congruent and having nothing hidden. To be naked demands that we let go of other people's opinions and judgments of us. It means to be who and whatever I am, regardless of what anyone else thinks, regardless of what anyone else wants me to be. And finally, the last slogan, live lightly. I think it was Bante who said that angels can fly because they take themselves so lightly. Living lightly is about not being so earnest, heavy and serious. It's about being open and receptive to fun and joy. On another level... Living lightly is about treading lightly on this planet, not leaving a heavy environmental footprint. Ultimately, what slowing down, letting go, being naked and living lightly add up to is a loosening of attachment to the sense of self. They point towards a more fluid and less fixed or definite sense of who I am. And this only happens by breaking down some long-standing and very unhelpful habits. In his lecture, The Taste of Freedom, Sangharakshita says, The person we think of as George or Mary and recognise as acting in a particular way is simply a habit that a certain stream of consciousness has got into. But since it has got into it, it can also get out of it. It's like a knot tied into a piece of string. It can be untied. Breaking the fetter of habit means, essentially, getting out of the habit of being a particular kind of person. It's not easy to get out of the habit of being a particular kind of person, or the particular kind of person we are. One of the reasons for this is other people. Not only have we ourselves got into a habit of being a particular way, but other people have got into the habit of experiencing us being in the habit of experiencing us as being in the habit of being a particular way. I'm not sure if I read that right, but you get the sense of what I'm saying. (laughs) I think I've repeated myself. Anyway. um, You get what it means, thank you. (laughs) So, by entering the forest, we take ourselves away from the clutter of our everyday lives 
away from the usual distractions and away from the people who reinforce our sense of who we think we are. Perhaps it would be interesting, an interesting experiment to see what it's like to consciously behave in non-habitual ways, perhaps just for a week or two. The prospect of this might be liberating and perhaps a little frightening too. So now the forest is a place for facing fear, sorry, a place for facing fears. In the Buddha's time, as in other times and places, the forest was and still is a place to be feared. It was full of wild animals, demons, spirits, beasts and bandits. This is reflected time and again in legends, myths and fairy tales. Forests are depicted as dark, mysterious and enchanted places. From a Buddhist perspective, we could say that they are a sort of charnel ground, a place where we are confronted with unpalatable truths. City life is structured, controlled and to a great extent predictable. It creates the false impression of certainty. In contrast, forests feel far from predictable and certain. When we enter the forest, we do so naively, like children. The rules and conventions of the city simply do not apply there. The forest is a strange place. It is other. When we enter there, we do not have a sense of security, the sense of security that comes from familiarity and habit. Because there are so few distractions or external distractions in the forest, we cannot help but be confronted by ourselves, especially those aspects of ourselves that we normally prefer to keep buried and out of awareness. Those parts that we don't like, those parts that we fear, perhaps those parts that we're embarrassed about or even ashamed of. Earlier, when I was describing Friedrich's painting, I pointed out that there's a raven perched on a tree stump. For the psychologist Carl Jung, the raven symbolises the shadow, the dark side of our psyche that needs to be acknowledged and integrated in order for us to become whole, or what Jung described as individuated. If we want to grow, if we want to become true individuals, then we have no choice but to enter the forest. Rather than avoiding or covering up our fears, we must acknowledge them, turn towards them, sit with them, and ultimately transform them. So the forest is a place of transformation. Amoga City is the dark green archetypal Buddha of the north, where there is endless forest. His mudra, like that, is the Abhaya mudra, the mudra of fearlessness and unobstructed success. In order to survive and thrive in the forest, we have to learn to become like Amoga City. Forests have always been places of initiation, especially the initiation of adults into adulthood, sorry, adolescence into adulthood. In tribal cultures, adolescents enter the forest and are confronted with various trials and challenges. Sometimes these trials are external. For example, climbing trees to collect honey from the canopy hundreds of feet above the ground. Or perhaps chasing, you know, hunting a dangerous animal. However, 
More often than not, the trial involves ingesting mushrooms or plants with psychedelic properties, such as mescaline or ayahuasca. In this instance, the adolescent isn't so much confronted with what we might call objective, external fears, but rather subjective, internal fears of the mind. Interestingly, Amogacidi's time of day, or the time of day that's associated with Amogacidi, is midnight. So when we consider the totality of his symbolism, forests, midnight, and fearlessness, it seems obvious that his realm is that of the unconscious, where our deepest fears lurk and gnaw away at us from the inside. In tribal cultures, it is the capacity to come to terms with one's own unconscious and all the fears and anxieties that lurk there that distinguishes an adult from a child. So the transformation that happens in the forest is not really about coming to terms with the external world, but about coming to terms with oneself. This is the most challenging trial of all. If we accomplish this, then we can truly be said to be our own person. We cease to be negatively motivated by our fears, which restrict and limit us. We are free to wholeheartedly pursue that which we most deeply cherish, love and value. Only when we've confronted the depths of our unconscious can we unreservedly orientate our lives towards the fulfilment of our ideals. Only when we've integrated and transformed our shadow can we really go for refuge to the three jewels. And finally, the forest is a place to connect with reality. The purpose of going for refuge to the three jewels is to bring our experience closer to reality, or maybe I should say, to open ourselves to the direct experience of reality itself. The forest lends itself to this, because the nature of the forest is the same as our nature, and the true nature of both is the nature of reality. Ultimately, the same could be said of the city, but because the man-made city is consciously constructed and contrived in such a synthetic way as to give the impression of permanence, stability and certainty, its true nature, that is its impermanence, instability and unsatisfactoriness, tends to be obscured. The nature of reality is so much more obvious in the forest, where everything arises and passes away, as a matter of course. Also, the elements of earth, water, heat, air and space that are intrinsic to the compounded nature of our bodies are also there in their raw states in the forest. <coughs> Intuitively, <coughs> I sense that once we acknowledge, confront and let go of our fears of the forest, we can then completely relax into the forest because I've already said its nature reflects our nature. In the forest, in nature, we are more easily able to see the truth of our own, everyone else's, and everything's impermanence, our vulnerability to causes and conditions over which we have little or no control, our, fragi our fragility, our uniqueness, our preciousness. And with heightened awareness of this, the natural emotion re emotional response is catanyata, Gratitude, metta, and karana, compassion. Emotions that are perfumed with the nature of reality. 
and our behavioural response to these emotions is to let go and further loosen attachments to the world of samsara. So before concluding, I'd like to read something from the life of Shakpa, sorry, Shapka. Uh, Shapka was a wandering Tibetan um, monk, well, not monk, sort of a hermit, I guess. It's entitled Song of the Flower. Another day, I went for some fresh air to a meadow covered with flowers. While singing and remaining in a state of awareness of the absolute views, I noticed among the profusion of flowers spread out before me one particular flower, waving gently on its long stem and giving out a sweet fragrance. As it swayed from side to side, I heard this song in the rustling of its petals. Listen to me, mountain dweller. I don't want to hurt your feelings. But, in fact, even you lack awareness of impermanence and death let alone any realisation of emptiness. For those with such awareness, outer phenomena all teach impermanence and death. I, the flower, will now give you, the yogi, a bit of helpful advice on death and impermanence. A flower born in the meadow, I enjoy perfect happiness. With my brightly coloured petals in full bloom, Surrounded by an eager cloud of bees, I dance gaily, swaying gently in the wind. When a fine rain falls, my petals wrap around me. When the sun shines, I open like a smile. Right now, I look well enough, but I won't last long, not at all. Unwelcome frost will dull the vivid colours, till turning brown I wither. Thinking of this, I am disturbed. Later still, winds, violent and merciless, will tear me apart until I turn to dust. You, hermit, are the same nature, or of the same nature. Surrounded by a host of disciples, you enjoy a fine complexion. Your body of flesh and blood is full of life. When others praise you, you dance with joy. Right now, you look well enough, but you won't last long, not at all. Unhealthy ageing will steal away your healthy vigour. Your hair will whiten, and your back will grow bent. When touched by the merciless hands of illness and death, you will leave this world for the next life. Since you, mountain-roaming hermit, and I, the mountain-born flower, are mountain friends, I have, offered your, I have offered you these words of good advice. Then the flower fell silent and remained still. In reply, I sang, O brilliant, exquisite flower, your discourse on impermanence is wonderful indeed. But what shall the two of us do? Is there nothing that can be done? The flower replied, Among the activities of Sangsara, there is not one that is lasting. Whatever is born will die. Whatever is joined will come apart. Whatever is gathered will disperse. Whatever is high will fall. 
Having considered this, I resolve not to be attached to these lush meadows. Even now, in the full glory of my display, even as my petals unfold in splendour. You too, while strong and fit, should abandon your clinging. Seek the pure field of freedom, the great serenity. So in conclusion, when we go on retreat, or even when we come here to the Buddhist centre, say to an evening like this one, we just sit in, you know, we just, whether we're sitting in front of the shrine, here at home, we are metaphorically entering the forest. We make a conscious and deliberate decision to renounce, albeit temporarily, our usual routines, our lives, our usual lives, our usual relationships. We place ourselves in conditions that encourage our depths to surface, conditions that may, re- may reveal our shadow and the fears that accompany it. But, or and, these are the conditions that encourage positive transformation and potentially bring us closer to reality. At the beginning of the talk, I drew your attention to Friedrich's painting and told you that it had quite an impact upon me. A few years after discovering this painting, I made my own version of it. In my painting, the soldier had taken off his armour and was entering the forest naked. Something in me strongly sensed that this was something I needed to do in order to change and grow. I needed to let go of trying to be so in control of my life and somehow find a way of living more likely. For quite some time, my story or narrative that went up, sorry, the story or narrative that went along with this painting was that I should enter the forest, travel to its centre, face my fears, and then return to my regular life. A bit like the archetypal journeying to the centre of a, of a, what are they called, a labyrinth, and then coming out again. However, if you remember, at the beginning of the talk, I also told you about a fellow retreatant's comment. She said, I'm not out of the woods yet, and that impacted upon me too. That comment stirred something in me, and it wouldn't leave me. I pondered and reflected, reflected upon it for the whole of the retreat, and ended up changing the narrative I'd rehearsed so well about Friedrich's forest painting. I experienced a sort of epiphany or insight, which was that, as a Buddhist, I am committed to going for refuge to the Buddha, Dharma and Sangha. In making that commitment, I have metaphorically entered the forest and all that that entails. My epiphany, if I can call it that, was that having entered the forest, I shall never leave it. The act of going for refuge to the three jewels means that we shall forever dwell there, forever renouncing attachments, forever facing fears, forever transforming ourselves, and forever striving to live congruently with reality. This means slowly but surely becoming creatures of the forest. As Buddhists, we have all entered the forest, and over time we come to realise that the forest has also entered us. Thank you.